In this episode of Savannah, Georgia, Anything But Ordinary. They basically say, you know, if we pretend like the law doesn't exist and we keep drinking, as long as the police and as long as the mayor uh, aren't going to enforce it, we'll be okay. And that's essentially what happens. Uh, a lot of law-breaking, but not law-breaking that goes punish, really. Not at first, at least. Hey, y'all. I'm Shannon. In this episode, we sit down with Travis Spangenberg from the American Prohibition Museum to talk about Savannah's history with alcohol. Savannah's not a city that likes to play by the rules, and the era of American Prohibition was no different. Our coastal waterways were once trafficked by bootleggers and speedboats, and locker rooms weren't for storing gym bags. If you're one that imbibes, pour yourself a drink and take a listen. So my name is Travis Spangenberg. I am the creative and production manager at the American Prohibition Museum. Uh, the American Prohibition Museum, in a general sense, is uh, committed to, of course, telling the story of Prohibition, an oft-neglected uh, ver- uh, 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 era of American history. You know, we talk about some parts of it, but as far as the full study of the ramifications of it and the need for it, uh, it kind of gets glossed over in American history classes, so we're really glad to bring that story to life, and what a story it is. Uh, it, we tell the story in the museum a lot of different ways through artwork from the era, artifacts of all kinds, everything from newspapers to vintage cars to uh, glassware to actual weapons and, and you know, things <laughs> from gangsters, suits, clothing, uh, flapper, makeup, and things like that. All, uh, we, we tell it that way where you can actually look at the things from the era, the things that are 80, 90, 100 plus years old. Uh, but also video from the era, audio, uh, different recreations and reproductions, and a full art design with wax figures, 35 of them I think we're at now, and a full running speakeasy. So it's a good time, and my work there is on the creative side of things, getting actors trained to be able to relate this history in the most effective way, as well as creating all of our kind of social media and... uh, we do a show. We do Know Your Onions, which is a a uh, web show uh, where we kind of dive into some of the stranger, more interesting stories of the era and kind of before it. Uh, but yeah, that's what I do. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Awesome. And the the museum specifically looks at Prohibition through a Savannah lens too, correct? Yeah. So while I always say that while we do st- tell the entire story of uh, of its national effect we definitely don't miss the opportunities to to kind of dial it down and zoom in on where we are which is savannah which has a really unique uh place in the prohibition story and so we we do not miss any opportunity to zero in on that awesome and it's the only prohibition museum in the country correct yeah like i said a neglected era of history that's such uh, a cool thing you would think that it would have been done you know you'd think people would have done it but to be fair, I think most people have centered on specific uh, topics of the era. There are Ma, There's the Ma Museum in Las Vegas. There are all kinds of museums dedicated at the places where these temperance ladies lived. There are alcohol museums and bar and cocktail uh, attractions. But no museum thus far has gone, you know what, let's take a look at this entire story and see how it influenced all parts of American culture. Well, Prohibition has such an important part of Savannah's history and obviously obviously savannah loves its alcohol or has does now maybe hasn't always but it it has always (laughs) walk us through a little bit of prohibition maybe kind of similar to the museum like starting off with a general sense and then we can dive more into some of the specific savannah stories okay prohibition uh it is very easy to look at it today and go why would we 
why why on earth would we want to get rid of alcohol people today generally have an understanding that it is a problem with you know people understand that alcoholism is dangerous and that it's very real and that it's a disease uh, but they don't see it as a they, they see it as a personal health issue and something to be solved with guidance and, and they don't see it as an overwhelming public health issue where we just need to get rid of the stuff. Um, people today really can't comprehend how that would be a solution that uh, people would consider. Uh, but the first thing I like to tell people uh, when giving guided tours of the museum or anything like that is that it's just not the drinking culture we know of today at the time. By the mid-1800s, the average American was drinking seven gallons of pure alcohol a year. That amounts to about 90 bottles of whiskey over the course of an entire year. Now, that's the average American. That's not the average American drinker. The average American drinker is actually drinking more of that, and the the, the statistic is being skewed downwards by your teetotalers, oh, the people that are better. not drinking. I'm yeah. like doing that math in my head like, oh, wait. Yeah, yeah <laughs> oh, no. don't worry, I did all the math. Yeah, so the average drinker, the people that are really abusing the stuff, may be doing five or six bottles of, of hard liquor per week. Oh Americans gosh. have generally been a very beer, cider heavy uh, uh, culture uh, in the colonial period. And then as soon as the Industrial Revolution gets going, we are uh, liquor is a lot easier to produce. It's a lot easier to get around. George Washington produ- produces it towards the end of the century, uh, becomes one of the biggest whiskey distillers in the country post-presidency. Uh, and so generally there's just a lot more of a lot stronger stuff going on. And it's by the 1830s that especially religious leaders are starting to look at this and go, oh, this could be a problem. And it does become a problem. Uh, one of the things I like to impress upon people, uh, telling the story to a modern audience is that, uh, we had a very different family unit at the time where the entire family is is centered around a single man. There could be more sometimes if you had older sons or brothers in a family business, but at the worst case scenario, it's a single man's job to provide for what could be a lot of people. Uh, at the very minimum, it's just him and his wife, but it could be him and his wife and his kids, him and his wife and his kids and his unmarried sisters, him, his wife, his kids, his unmarried sisters, and his widowed mother. So there's all these people that could be de- depending on one man. And in the best of circumstances, that man's very responsible. He uh, spends his money well, he saves well, he feeds his children, he doesn't hurt them, uh, he doesn't abuse his wife. But in the worst case scenario, he spends all that money and nobody has anything to live on. That's not even the worst case scenario. It gets worse when you factor in abuse. So by the mid-1800s, Americans are becoming very concerned, mostly women who are really the, the, the people who stand the most to lose, because while the men are the ones losing the money, they're the ones losing their health, they are at least in their kind of drunken bliss, whereas the wife is powerless to do anything about it. So women are starting to see the problem uh, coming. Uh, they, they see the writing on the wall. And... Uh, Generally, it just becomes not a big movement overnight. It's uh, one of those things that takes time. It begins churning prior to the Civil War, 1840s and 50s. You see a lot of the early temperance societies, but uh, abolition becomes the big cultural issue, as it should have been uh, for up until the Civil War. Civil War, once that ends and Reconstruction begins, it's then that you see a lot of Northern groups uh, starting to focus abolition, they kind of view as in the rearview mirror, even though rearview mirrors didn't exist at the time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
they are now ready to move on to their next cultural issue, which some reformers of the time, I don't think we would agree in a modern day, but they they called it as bad as slavery. Uh, Frederick Douglass, the former slave, uh, was a temperance man. He called alcohol a, a kind of slavery. So uh, this was kind of where everybody's mind was at post, uh, post-Civil War. And it's in the 1870s that the major group, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, is founded. They're the ones who are really going to take the football and move it up the field uh, throughout the latter half of the 19th century into the 20th century. And that's the movement, kind of, the, the genesis of it. Okay. Uh, it's a lot, I know. So then at, at what point then, so it's the late 1800s, post-Civil War, mm-hmm. alcohol is legal in mm-hmm. Savannah. Yes. Okay. Then when does it not become legal? So uh, states had started, there was kind of a big flash of states going dry in the 1850s, and then they all repealed it. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a state law that could easily be flipped as soon as they voted. What it is out. going dry? Oh, going dry. So uh, that's that's the pop. We we speak so much in the modern parlance of or the contemporary parlance of the prohibition era that I forget that these are not terms that like everybody's sitting around going like, oh yeah, dry. I mean, I've heard it, but just yeah, to clarify, yeah, no, there <laughs> yeah. are there are definite people that they see our wet versus dry literature and they mm-hmm. go, oh, what's that? Yeah. Um, so dry is basically it can refer to a place or it can refer to a politician or even just a person and a thinker. Dry basically denotes an anti-alcohol sentiment. Wet is very pro-alcohol sentiment. If you're a dry county, that normally or like if it's it's referring to a geographical location or a region, that's referring to the status of their alcohol laws. Whereas if it's referring to a person, it's kind of their personal views. So if if you are dry, you, I'm not. <laughs> let's just say. In this crazy, uh, bizarro world, you've gone dry. You've sworn off alcohol. At least it may mean just liquor. Uh, dry traditionally means everything, but you know you might consider yourself dry if you're just having a, a little cider now. So they go dry in the 1850s. Everybody, pretty much, in fact, every one of those states that does that, they all had based it off of Maine, which was the first to do it, and that kind of kick at it. Um, they all rescind it, they repeal it, and then in the 1880s, Kansas kicks off, instead of a law, they start doing constitutional amendments so that it's enshrined in the Constitution, much harder to repeal. And a lot of the ones that are done by constitutional amendment in the 1880s and beyond have sticking power up through the end of Prohibition. Kansas goes dry from 1881 to 1948, 67 years. They are the longest state to have done so. Uh, with Mississippi having been the latest, which is 1966 is when they repealed their statewide uh, liquor law. So very much my mom, I mean, she was nowhere near Mississippi. Uh, she'd stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, New, my New Jersey mother, uh, she was born six years before Kansas was dry for six years of her life. Nine years of my dad's. Oh, my gosh. No, no. Math was wrong. Ten years of my dad's. So. So it's not that far away is is my point. Is, yeah. So and then you get um into into Georgia. Georgia is the one who does it in 1908, which technically would have made Savannah dry by law in starting in 1908. So are typically like the states that went were dry longer. Is there any correlation to like whether those states are red or blue? Uh let me think about that. Um, Kansas. I mean, they 
the best place for temperance sentiment tends to what was the Midwest. Okay. Midwest is really it was any place where the rural uh, communities had enough sway to be able to overturn because urban committees communities would not go dry, and that's what you see on a on a big scale in Georgia, Atlanta, Savannah, very anti-prohibition. That's why they're able to hold it off for as long as they did until 1908. Uh, but basically, in places like Kansas, the the grassroots of te- of temperance, which is the kind of a temperance refers to moderation, but it generally refers to the movement at large, the temperance movement. Uh, basically, the temperance movement starts calling for moderation, and then eventually when moderation isn't working, they turn to calls for total prohibition. Uh, so Kansas's temperance communities were strong enough that they could kind of overpower the will of Topeka or Wichita. Um, Midwest is big. Uh, Southeast becomes big, but not not automatically. Um, it takes uh, some time and some, frankly, pretty nefarious propaganda before the wets are a, or the dries are able to overcome the wets in the Southeast. Uh, and Georgia, I believe, was the first of the southeastern states to go dry, uh, with Mississippi close behind it. Wow. So. In 1908, it goes dry in Georgia, and then what happens between then and then when we go wet again? Mm-hmm. Oh, a whole lot. <laughs> Savannah has a fit for one thing. Um, Atlanta and Savannah were very, uh, very opposed to it. Uh, Macon, I believe, too. Uh, just that line. If you just drive up 16, in, in if 16 existed in 1908, you just find a lot of angry Georgians with a lot of very happy Georgians in between. Pretty much the minute you got out of the city... Uh, dry sentiment was pretty popular. It seems like something that should be so unpopular because we're colored by our our, our love of alcohol as a society today, uh, but it, it really was a, a rather mainstream issue. So um, Savannah, essentially, their reaction to it is it, not what I'd call measured, uh, which is not what you expect when you look at Savannah history. We have always been bombastic in our love of alcohol ever since the... It literally, I mean, our first... Uh, one of the first acts uh, founding this colony was to uh, ban alcohol or ban strong waters, rums, and brandies from being drunk in the new colony. And essentially, that was because when they first got here, everybody was getting blasted. And General Oglethorpe was like, we can't do this. We, we. He, he literally wanted to found Georgia as a hardworking, prosperous uh, 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 colony. And <laughs> The minute that happened, they were like, okay, none of this. And he got the king to issue a prohibition. Uh, It's the first known act of alcohol prohibition on the American continent right here in Savannah. Wow. I didn't, I've just pictured Oglethorpe arriving at like a frat house yeah, in yeah. 1733 and being like, yeah, we got to shut it down, boys. Like, <laughs> like he, I, I want to believe he had optimism, like, oh, these people, I picked them because he handpicked them. Essentially, the trustees handpicked the 117 or so settlers of Georgia. And <laughs> you have to believe it's kind of like kids going to college, like they were real beha- well behaved at home in England. And Oglethorpe was like, yes, these are perfect people. I love them. They will do good. And then the minute they got out of the like comforting home of England, they were just ah, crazy. <laughs> we're on an adventure. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, Jimmy Oglethorpe was just like, oh, God, where did I go wrong? And he had to be dad. He had to be the RA of their residence hall uh, of the college of the colony of Georgia. So, yeah, we basically have from our very start been very prolific drinkers here in Savannah. And uh, if you move here, you learn very quickly that uh, you you don't have to. I, I think we, we treat non-drinkers well, and there's plenty of, of tasty beverages like sweet tea that people can drink. But generally, if you're looking to drink, you'll be very at home in Savannah. 
Yep. First uh, question they ask, what do you have to drink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the old adage. So, um, essentially, Savannah had already been pretty well known for its its drinking, and so in 1908, there's actually in the Savannah Morning News, uh, one letter to the editor, I believe it was something along those lines, essentially called for the secession of of savannah from the state of georgia they said uh we should become the state of chatham uh maybe get some of the other surrounding island counties uh and coastal counties and just make our own state then we can do our own dry laws and georgia can have its dryness we don't know what atlanta's going to do about it they can have they can figure that out themselves but savannah can go off on its own and they wanted to become the probably would have been the 49th state uh, maybe 48th. I think New Mexico was founded in 1908 or was made a state in 1908, something like that. Um, so yeah, Savannah does, has no chill about their reaction. They freak out. Uh, generally though, things as large as secession are not realistically on the table. They ignore that and they essentially practice a, I don't want to call it civil disobedience. I feel like that, uh, puts kind of, a that does a disservice to people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., where it's a very organized, very deliberate. It's just a lazy disregard for the law. They basically say, you know, if we pretend like the law doesn't exist and we keep drinking, as long as the police and as long as the mayor uh, aren't going to enforce it, we'll be okay. And that's essentially what happens. Uh, A lot of law-breaking, but not law-breaking that goes punished, really. Not at first, at least. So what were some of the, like, loopholes that they took to kind of keep it a little bit under the table, but, like, not really that Yeah, you hard. couldn't be crazy. You couldn't, like, on, on uh, God, what was a popular, Broughton still would have been a, a very popular street. You couldn't open up a bar and say, get your booze here, you know. Yeah. Uh, then that's just a plausible deniability thing. As a cop, I've got to go down there and be like, you can't, if somebody from Atlanta comes here, they're going to ask me why I didn't see that. So they, they are a little sneaky about it. And one of my favorite systems was the locker club. Um, the Savannah Yacht Club, which still exists today, was a, was a locker club at the time. And essentially how it works is that uh, you would have, you could have like your little pigeonhole and you keep a bottle at these private clubs. The way most prohibitions worked and the way federal kind of worked as well is, uh, Private clubs could could have alcohol that they purchased prior to prohibition, and um, so could individuals. So that wasn't necessarily illegal. It was more based around the manufacture, the sale, the transport uh, of it. Um, people drinking it in their own homes was not something that a uh, federal agent was trying to uh, bust up or, or really could bust up. So um, the locker club, essentially, not only could you keep your stuff there, but... At the bar, like if you ordered alcohol there, they would uh, write down the price on a little slip. They would collect the slips for the month. And then at the end of the month, you would be charged dues, uh, membership dues. They were not for alcohol. You were not spending the money on alcohol. It was not sale of alcohol. It was union. It was membership dues. Of course, everybody's membership dues happened to equal the amount of alcohol that they had that they had consumed that month. So it was a it was a loophole where essentially you could say, "Oh, I, I'm not selling alcohol, sir. I'm giving out alcohol," and it's uh, it's bold faced, which is my favorite kind of prohibition uh, uh, rejection. Uh, yeah, and essentially that's something you see a lot of places, not just in Savannah, but across the country would do what was called a blind pig, which was kind of like a speakeasy, not quite as glitzy as as what we think of a normal. It, it was more uh, lower class, middle class, and it got the name because people would uh, advertise an attraction like a blind pig 
uh, come see the blind pig and you'd buy a ticket to come see the blind pig and then you would get complimentary alcohol. Again, not selling it. That's it's they're it's so all tr- genius. Yeah, they're so tricky. Yeah, it's just like whenever going back again to the college reference, you're not gonna go to any college event unless there's free pizza and I don't go works, to really any event too. without free pizza. Uh, or booze. Yeah. <laughs> one or the other. Or both. Yeah. Oh, that's genius. And so are any of so we've talked about the Savannah Yacht Club as a locker room. Are there any of those like bland pig speakeasies still around today in savannah do you know of uh they're shrinking uh there there are places that used to be uh uh those sorts of places uh johnny harris uh unfortunately was was uh, the johnny harris restaurant was a prohibition era uh johnny harris was involved in the bootlegging he got arrested for it in our big uh, uh bootlegging raid here in savannah um so that until recently had been on victory drive uh, there are remains of a speakeasy out on the marsh, and I'm not even sure where on the marsh is. It was called Green Speakeasy, where you could basically boat up to it. No kidding. Yeah. Where in the marsh? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Huh. Uh, it's, uh, I, it's somewhere out there. Yeah, like out on Isle of Hope, probably, yeah, or yeah, somewhere so, in that area. Knows? Yeah, that's, <sighs> that's, that's normally cool. how it goes. Um, and then there was uh, Wolf Silver uh, ran a, uh, a billiard parlor called Wolf Pe- Wolf's, not Wolf. Uh, Bo Peep's Billiard Parlor, um, and that was on that was right across from Christ Church. That was uh, uh, Congress and uh, uh, right off of Johnson Square. Johnson Square, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was where kind of where that parking lot is today, behind the Jimmy Johns. Oh, okay. And that big banking building. Awesome. Uh, so that was there. Uh, uh, Crystal Beer Parlor would be the big one, and we love them. They so, are still open too. Yeah, exactly. We that that would be, I I I was just thinking in my head. I'm like I know there's one that if I don't mention it, I'm a bad prohibition boy. Um, Crystal Beer Parlor is the big one. They essentially, while we don't have good records on the illegal, the illegality of it, like how much illegal business they did, they were the first restaurant to serve alcohol, or they claim to be the first restaurant to serve alcohol after Georgia's prohibition ended. And even they say on their website, and we pretty much suspect they were so quick at it because they already had it on the premises because they were already selling it. Definitely. Uh, it wasn't Crystal Beer Parlor back then necessarily. It was owned by a guy named Blocko Manning. Uh, and they, there were rumors that he was in the liquor trade. Uh, but yeah, that would be the best example of a Savannah place that was a restaurant or a bar at the time and has kind of maintained that status of of, of selling alcohol. Yeah, and they're the oldest continually operating restaurant in Savannah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, which is amazing. There's I, so much history in yeah, there. I lo- yeah, it's covered the walls. If, if you haven't been, that's, that's the place to go as far as soaking up that kind of history. And they're doing a really great job with the... Uh, COVID. Yeah, uh, I just went yeah. like last week and they have this huge tent yeah. set up. Massive tent. Inside. You can sit outside yeah. or inside and they space people out inside and yeah, it's there's heaters out there if you go when it's chilly out, but yeah, yeah, it's really nice. I should go with my dog because outside seating is always good. Yeah, and oh my gosh, the food is so good in there. I'd oh yeah, die uh, I, I, I crave their burgers every now and then. Yeah. I, uh, starting right after Savannah went, I, I always kind of giggle when I say Savannah went dry because it, it was never really a reality here. Um, but right after Georgia went dry and Savannah played along, uh, they uh, a liquor ring sprouted up. You know th- that that's the really the big story of prohibition across the country is that it creates this vacuum for uh, business people to uh, fill uh, private business people who end up being 
they're criminals in that they're violating the prohibition law, but they end up using a lot of violent crime to maintain power of their uh, their uh, enterprise. Uh, Savannah, luckily, ours. I'm sure there was plenty of violence, but we never got on a level like a Chicago or a Detroit or uh, any of those places, New York City, uh, Baltimore. So um, we seem to have a more friendly approach to the whole crime thing, which feels very Savannah, like a bunch of guys after Georgia went dry kind of got around and said, you know, I don't like all this. Let's just let's just trade liquor. We'll be nice and cool about it. But uh, let's not hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. That feels very Savannah. Um, so it's these guys, uh, named the horrors, H A A R. Uh, the dad, Fred is a German immigrant. He, uh, he had a grocery store that they were able to sell liquor out of. And as prohibition, uh, as state gives way to federal prohibition, they kind of start upping their enterprise. He buys him and his son, Willie, Willie Har was the ringleader of, of the whole thing. Willie and him buy a huge uh, fleet of boats that they use to go down to the Caribbean, stock up with liquor, and then they come anchor three miles off of the shore of Savannah, and then they use a fleet of speedboats to transport their liquor into the marshes. Uh, Generally, the idea is that speedboats go much faster than the Coast Guard can catch. They turn faster, and once they get into the marshes, this kind of good old boy network, as we call it, is going to know those marshes a lot better than these Coast Guard guys that are from all over the country. So you can lose the Coast Guard really easy, and then once you get it on land, it essentially disappears into Savannah, and then it disappears into uh, the rest of the country. So uh, they get going, and they're making a lot of money. Uh, Plenty. I think they got raided, and it was something like $75,000 got confiscated. Uh, Don't quote me on that. That's a lot of money now. Yeah, yeah. And so I can't even imagine how much it was then. If I lost $75, I would be very upset today. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Like if if someone raided my bank account for $75, I would be crestfallen right um so they uh they're doing well and essentially the feds know that savannah has this network they have a general idea that they're uh fueling the rest of the country's uh liquor uh they called us the spigot of the south uh which is kind of our nickname uh and the problem becomes though is that they're really hard to catch uh federal raids that they attempt don't work uh, essentially, it's like these guys know that the feds are coming and they're able to kind of cover everything up uh, before they get there. So uh, there becomes this very reasonable suspicion that somebody on the inside is letting them know. So they plan a raid in 1923 or 24. I think it's 23 where um, they uh, do not tell anybody local that it's coming. The feds uh, rent out an entire floor of the DeSoto Hotel. Uh, where uh, the today's DeSoto is a different building, but same spot. And they rent out an entire floor and they basically use that as their headquarters. All the agents filter into Savannah uh, kind of weeks at a time. Uh, so they're not drawing suspicion and not seeming like there's a big federal raid coming. And uh, they get one of the rooms certified to uh, dispense warrants out of the room so that they don't have to go to the local police department or they don't have to go to local judges. Um 
and essentially it's all kept on the down low. And then on a night in August, they kick off the raid without anybody knowing and they spread all over the city, arresting the people they suspect. Uh, when all was said and done the next day, 84 people were indicted, I believe, with uh, over 120 eventually being indicted just in the Savannah area. That included all of the horrors. It included Johnny Harris. It included, I believe, a prominent banker, a former police chief, uh, other prominent Savannians, and Wolf Silver, who I mentioned uh, started uh, the billiard parlor. He started that after he got out of jail. A lot of these guys ended up going to Atlanta Penitentiary, where in a couple years uh, they would be joined by George Remus, who was the king of the bootleggers based out of Cincinnati. And then by the end of the decade, they'd pro- if they weren't out already, but if, if they were still in Atlanta, they would have been joined by Al Capone. Uh, in the 30s. Uh, Al Capone did his first uh, like year or so of uh, prison time for his tax evasion charge here in Georgia in Atlanta Penitentiary before they moved him to Alcatraz. And a lot of the reason he got moved to Alcatraz was because that first, uh, those first, that first decade of prohibition, all the rumors out of Atlanta, including about George Remus and about some of the Savannah Four guys, is that Atlanta was a pretty cushy place to be if you had the money to bribe the prison guards, that everybody was very, very amenable to special treatment. And so uh, George Remus, uh, they said he could entertain guests in his cell. He had his own bar in the cell, like his own little private bar, and he had his own radio. And so when the government basically had to put Al Capone away, as a, it was he was a major publicity headache for a government that said they could handle prohibition enforcement, Al Capone was this constant thorn in their side, making headlines for all these killings. So they send him to Atlanta, and then news reports start coming out that Al is living the high life in prison. As far as we can tell, they're not true. Uh, Al didn't receive special treatment, but the rumors were enough to cause a further headache for the Hoover administration, and that's when they transferred him to Alcatraz out of state. Wow. Yeah. So did alcohol... Al- wait, go ahead. Sorry. So yeah, that's that's basically how that, that raid ended. Oh, and important to note, the, it was the f- largest federal raid up until that point during Prohibition. It was the most successful. It was the biggest. It made headlines in the New York Times. Wow. That's all a huge deal. Savannah. People all over the country woke up and read about the big old raid in Savannah. Big PR Savannah push. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they always say there's no bad coverage, right? I, I don't, don't think Savannah it. minds all that much. They're like, yeah, we did it. <laughs> um, I wonder if that and it wouldn't like. I think about this now. So, like, if visit Savannah, we, you know, when anything happens in the world, we're like, well, is this going to affect visitation or not affect visitation? I wonder back then if that enticed more people to want to come to Savannah or less people to want to come to Savannah. <laughs> well, yeah, luckily we didn't. We didn't. Not luckily. Like I, I love tourism, but we didn't. Luckily in that it didn't affect it because they weren't relying on tourism right. in a big way at the time. But um, I think if you were a drinker, you probably didn't mind. Mm-hmm. And there were events that Savannah did host events. Uh, we did sporting events like races. There was a story um, early in the or early in our state prohibition where we still weren't quite sure how it was going to go in Savannah if it would be enforced. The... Um, there was a race that was going to be held there and the race organizers freaked out and they said, do we can, we can't do this here. If you guys are going to be dry and the Savannah organizers, the Savannah side of it said, Oh, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Yeah. (laughs) And essentially at those races, they ended up having, uh, Savannians walked around with buttons that said, I live here. Ask me. 
uh, referring to they know where to get it. Uh, there's an anecdote where a guy from Atlanta or from out of town somewhere went up to a guy in Savannah and asked him, hey, where can I get a drink around here? And the Savannian pointed to a church and the guy goes, good God, you can get it at a church? And he goes, nah, everywhere else. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I was about to be like, what church is that? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, you could not get it there. Funnily enough, though, you could get it. You could get some kind of alcohol during Prohibition at churches because sacramental wine was still legal. Right. But uh, but they probably had to lock that stuff up somewhere safe for sure. They did. And well, some people would uh, I think bootleggers would pretend to be priests and rabbis to, to get a hold of that. Uh, you know, luckily, well, I would say that a lot of the push for prohibition was from religious leaders. So they would be responsible with it. But it wasn't coming from the religious leaders who had uh who had sacramental wine as part of their uh, religious beliefs. Uh, it was, you know, Catholicism and Judaism are the ones, the big ones with sacramental wine. And it was a lot of the Catholic and Jewish immigrants who were vehemently opposing prohibition. So right, right. I, I think a lot of those peace, priests and rabbis would have been a little more uh, forthcoming about uh, letting a little wine slip out of their stores. Yeah, the clergy needs their fix too sometimes. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so Al Capone, he was in Atlanta. Did he have any ties to Savannah or? Yeah, so okay. he, he ran liquor all up the coast and, uh, you know, he lived in, in, in down near Miami and, you know, it wasn't really, we weren't exactly doing uh, pan uh, uh we weren't exactly flying across the country, you know, that just wasn't an option. So you'd take trains, you'd take cars. And when he would go down to uh, uh, Miami from Chicago, he, he'd have to pass through this area. He uh, is rumored to have st- helped fund what was called the General Oglethorpe Hotel, which was kind of out um, uh, on the islands. Um, I think like Whitmarsh, not Whitmarsh, Wilmington. It was on Wilmington Island. That's the one. I always get the two W's confused. Um, so he he was rumored to have funded that as a place for his bootleggers to lie low. There's even crazy rumors that it might be the hiding place of Jimmy Hoffa's body, uh, stuff like that. Uh, I think they've examined that and figured out that. Is it still there? Uh, not the building, no. Okay. Um, and uh, he also would stay at the DeSoto. So the DeSoto had a weird amount of prohibition history where people were just kind of hanging out uh, in the DeSoto, both the federal agents and Al Capone. Uh, there's a story from... Uh, one of Al Capone's stays here where um, it starts at a, uh, a mechanic shop uh, next to where Bradley Lock and Key is today on State Street. And um, there was a, a garage there, a mechanic's shop uh, run by a guy named Sherman Helm, Sherman Helmy. I always want to say Hemsley because of the actor. But Sherman Helmy, uh, they called him Moose. So Moose Helmy had this mechanic shop. A car comes in. They want it fixed up. The client's not there. It's like one of his employees. And the guy fixes it. Moose fixes it up and delivers it to the DeSoto Hotel where the client's waiting for it. It's Al Capone's the client. He um, puts Moose on the payroll supposedly to fix his bootleggers uh, cars. Uh, Like uh, the feds will shoot out the radiators to fix the bullet holes. Uh, Moose called them hunting accidents. And then um, if they needed like a hiding place installed inside the car, Moose could do the work on that. And, uh, you know, he, he did a little work for Al Capone without ever getting involved with the um, uh, the Chicago, any of that violence or any of the drama. He very undramatically was able to make extra money during Prohibition in that way. And his daughter is a charter boat captain, uh, Judy Helmy, uh, here in Savannah. Miss uh, Judy Charters. Yeah, Miss Judy. She's uh, she, she was really helpful in kind of putting together those facts and uh, we have a picture of 
her dad's uh, Moose's uh, shop in the museum. That's so cool. I love that like locals are yeah like kind of proud of it. I mean, it's yeah. part of history. I mean, you can't can't really deny it. So it's one of, well, it's one of those tough things where a lot of historical call them crimes or or uh, atrocities too. Um, they uh, as we grow old, as we get further in history and get more distance from them, they they look worse and worse. Things like slavery are, are you know nobody would make excuses hopefully for their the slavers in their family, uh, but prohibition is one of those things where we still don't regard it as a crime. Not in the traditional way, even though it's a lot like what we see with drug dealing today and things like that. Um, Americans today are, are, as we get farther away from it, it seems sillier and sillier that we would ban alcohol. And that, I think, coupled also with the fact that people know people who moonshine even to this day. They illegally make alcohol. It's just not seen – it's more like a legal crime than a moral crime. It's, uh, you know, a lot of legal crimes are moral crimes. Like we've all agreed that murder is bad and we've all agreed there should be laws against it. Uh, But at the time, we kind of agreed there should be laws against bootlegging. But we hadn't really grappled with the idea that it was like a moral failing. It was just like something people did. Of course, Dries and people with a vested interest in keeping Prohibition alive were appalled and they did see it as a moral failing. But um, even uh, Elliot Ness, the federal agent who was enforcing this and was doing it very honestly, said that in his autobiography, he said that he grappled with the idea of enforcing a law that the general public just didn't seem to want. Uh, that becomes harder. And as we've gotten more time since Prohibition, I think it's that that has only been amplified where we're, we're kind of like, uh, well, no, everybody sees these guys as heroes. But at the time, they were seen as, as some people really destroying the streets. Wow. It's like it's like now we wouldn't understand the means to the ends. Like we understand mm -hmm. the mental health issue of it Mm -hmm. and like the physical health and certainly the domestic abuse issues that were Mm -hmm. coming to light that kind of catalysted all of this. But we don't we wouldn't sympathize with like the way that you went about controlling those things or. Yeah. 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 And that's why I do. I do go against what I would call universal things. Uh when I'm trying to get people to at least, I don't expect anybody that comes into the museum to uh, hear the uh, arguments of the temperance people, which sometimes those arguments were really bad and they're really um, uh, offensive arguments, but like the general arguments against alcohol, I don't expect them to be swayed by it, but I do expect a readiness to uh, at least sympathize with the place that these women had found them in. I think I always say that, uh, you don't have to agree on the solution of the problem, but I think we need to admit that there was a problem worth solving. Uh, the solution may have been something else other than alcohol prohibition, and I think given how it went with the crime and economic failures of it, people would agree, historians would agree, that maybe we should have done something different. But I also ask people, well, what? Right. What, what would you do? Uh, if you're a woman in that situation with a husband drinking himself to death, not even an abusive one, but one you love very dearly and you're just watching him waste away and you're watching the saloon get richer and richer. Saloons had no financial incentive into cutting people off or limiting their alcohol consumption or uh, uh, lowering their clientele by, say, like age limits. They um, 
a lot of mail was given out at saloons. Saloons made themselves kind of the epicenter of a city. You you could vote in saloons, you could sleep in them, you could uh, you could get your mail, and so they were depending on. They were trying to always increase their profits, which they did very well. That's how Adolphus Bush became the you know Bud Budweiser's the king of beers. But the flip side of that, the toll is that a lot of people were hurt. And so in the face of that machine, what is a woman trying to save her family supposed to do? And I haven't really heard a great suggestion yet. Right. The museum does such an awesome job of that, of like showing both sides of the story and both opinions on either end of the mm-hmm. spectrum, but then also the stories of the gray area in between too, mm-hmm. where most people lie yeah, and probably yeah. still would. Yeah, I think that's that's a really cool thing about the museum. It's important to me because it's, it's important to keep in mind, and I tell the actors that I'm training this, that you know, it might seem like everybody's <laughs> drunk in Savannah. You know, everybody's having a good time. But a lot of more Americans than people realize don't drink at all. Even more kind of are, are very temperate about it. And um, nobody wants to, you know, if I'm going to the Prohibition Museum as somebody who takes very seriously the threat that alcohol even today can have, I don't want to have an experience where everybody's going like, yeah, this is a great prohibition. Why did we do that? What is what? So it's more than just being non-biased. It's being able to understand the the sides of it and that there are those shades of gray and that um, more people than we think today are still concerned about this issue. Um, it, it feels like something in the history, but it's not dead and gone. It's, it's changed and we've gotten a lot better. Our numbers, uh, we drink about a third of that number that I quoted from 1830. So uh, we're certainly doing better, but it's not like that you know, everybody knows somebody who struggles with this, uh, whether they know that they struggle with it or not. And so it is important for me that people who may struggle with it or have, or know someone who have, when they come in the museum, we're not celebrating the forces that are kind of tearing their loved ones apart. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's important. And I think it's doing a service to the men and women who, who fought for prohibition, uh, in a really honest way. It was a very personal issue. They, um, it wasn't. I always say it's not an abstract political issue where you sat in a room and you kind of thought on it and went, "Oh, this is uh, this is kind of my uh, like the way you would evaluate like an economic tariff or something." It's it's very in the abstract about GDP and all that. There's a lot of things you take into account, but this was a highly personal, intimate uh, political issue. I, I liken it to the opioid crisis. Uh, in a lot of ways, people like to compare it to other recreational drugs, but as far as something that the general public has seen uh, to be uh, an an existential threat to people's lives, uh, I, I think it, there's a lot better uh, um, equivalencies between alcohol then and opioids now. Yeah, and it's such a flip side because here we were banning alcohol, but we were still putting cocaine and our coca-cola oh, yeah. <laughs> like. so they stopped that in 1904 but uh medicines were still f- one filled with alcohol right. at the time and uh it's amazing because i did a, we did a, a during the lockdown we did a, a story about this um in our one of our interview shows about the different drugs and how the drug prohibitions came about they had while they took it out of coca-cola it, it's not really there wasn't like a public backlash or any kind of realization that this was bad for you medicine was still filled with the stuff they they loved that it didn't cross their minds for far too long that cocaine was something that could really hurt somebody right and oh, i mean opioids and stuff yeah. like in oh yeah the they were doing stuff. tons of that yeah, yeah. there crazy. were the opium dens they they were uh uh but i always say to people and and that's a question that you get at the museum where 
guests are kind of like, what, what, what about the bad, the actual bad drugs? Like they weren't banning those. And I say, well, bad is kind of relative. But people weren't abusing them at the time. I mean, I'm sure some people were doing far too many opiates and so too much cocaine, but it was not an epidemic. It wasn't wreaking havoc uh, on the country. So there was no will to ban it because it wasn't the problem. Alcohol was the problem. And while it's not the problem today or the big problem, uh, it's I think the first thing you have to understand about the call for alcohol prohibition is that alcohol was a serious, serious problem. This wasn't a matter of a bunch of women getting sick that their husbands were having a good time without them. Although there's a component of that to that because women were completely barred from having any kind of social, you know, they got to have wines at like fancy parties and stuff. But as far as taking part in that social culture of going to a saloon, they were completely uh, ostracized from it. Wait, women weren't allowed in the saloons? I guess I did know that. I just didn't think they, about it. They could work in them, but they uh, they were uh, working in the bedrooms. Okay, yeah, because here I am thinking like, well, yeah, most it was most, largely women who were behind the temperance movement. But like, there had to have been a bunch of ladies hitting the sauce that were like, there don't were. take it away from us. Yeah, women, women would drink. Uh, but they weren't kind of welcomed into that drinking culture. Right. There were all these like uh, Mason lodges and 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 stuff like that where men could have these raucous, very vibrant social lives with other men, and they were extremely, extremely uh, opposed to welcoming women into those spaces. And not just in the fraternity ones where it kind of makes sense that it's just the guys because it's a fraternity, but into just general saloons. Men were like, we need a place where we can escape from the women. And I don't know. I've never walked into a bar which was majority male and been like, I love this. This <laughs> right. is great. I would like this to stay as much like this as possible. Not, not, not a single, not a single person should leave. Nobody should enter. Yeah, what's up with that? That does seem like totally opposite of like what it is now. Yeah, well, yeah, they they weren't doing the bars were not doing lady nights to attract more. Uh, right. Uh, it is just generally a different culture where. Uh, you know, there was no dating culture. You married someone you probably didn't like all that much, uh, and you did it based on social ties, especially if you were wealthier. There wasn't a lot of choice in marriage, and frankly, more often than not, when I find someone from the time period and it says, like, oh, they married someone that they were passionately in love with, um, and, like, they send letters that are full of passion to their actual spouse, I'm shocked every time. Right. It's, uh, it is more rare. Uh, Carrie Nation, the famous temperance crusader, hatchet swinging, uh, who if we get into her, I will I will talk all day. But she, her first husband, she loved so deeply, and it's all the more tragic that he was taken from her by alcoholism. Wow. But like there are presidents too, like John Adams, his wife was like his best friend. And uh, I love that. I love that for them. But uh, it was rare. It was uh, just not what you would typically find. They learned to like each other enough. But uh, not always. But for the most part, it was like a very it is a very social strategic arrangement. And love was something you read in novels and right. plays and stuff. Right. Speakeasies women go to a lot. It completely flips on its head from that saloon culture where now there's a dating culture. Men and women go and meet up in speakeasies as single people hanging out, dancing, kissing on each other, having music and all that, having a party. And so... The Roaring Twenties becomes this extremely liberating space for women. 
um, and people of color as well, uh, where the speakeasy is just generally an environment where people aren't, if everybody's committing a crime, nobody's going to stop you and be like, oh, women and men aren't supposed to, you know, you two aren't married. Right. That's well, not going to happen in a speakeasy. Everybody is already drinking illegally. Mm-hmm. It'd be a silly thing to enforce. Uh, so a lot of clubs, not all, of course, uh, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of clubs end up uh, racially integrated. A lot of performers, people like Ma Rainey and Louis Armstrong are able to say, I don't perform for segregated clubs, which they become so famous that club promoters end up being, they cave. Mm-hmm. And so for the first time you see uh, black performers having a semblance of power. Whereas like in the Jim Crow era and minstrel shows, they were very much performing for people and, and being told what to do and really make it, being forced to, to play stereotypes. These people were their own artists who could make calls. Uh, Bessie Smith had her own private train car. She was making so much money. Um, and uh, so, and then the, the final one is um, there's actually a fair amount of gay culture in speakeasies too. It's a uh, it's a cool uh, drag performance has become really popular in certain sections of certain cities. It's pretty crazy. Wow, it, that's it's, am- uh, amazing. It, it is, and, and you know, I don't want to I don't want to rose color it where it's perfect. I'm sure it was still very bad for a lot of those people living in the world and moving through the world, and there was still a tremendous amount of risk being who they were. Um, but uh, for the most part, I call it uh, the freest. It was the most free decade for the most amount of people in America since our founding, and it was the most free for a few decades after that even. Everything kind of tightened up after after Prohibition ends. Uh, So it's a really cool era to read about. There's so many different uh, avenues you can take. Yeah, that is amazing to think that such a common, I mean, what we all know, we all recognize as a huge restriction in America's time ends up doing the total opposite for so many people yeah yeah, yeah. it's yeah. everybody calls it a, uh, a violation of constitutional rights there is no constitutional right to drink uh, there just isn't um it, it's fair to say that it was the first amendment to restrict rights to to give people to make people less free and it's definitely a good point that you know it, it certainly doesn't feel like an american thing to do where it's um uh taking away people's rights to drink and all but it's true that it does create an environment that's kind of an accident though it is the same people that would have subjugated and um, discriminated against those people in the speakeasies whether it be women who want to be a bit more free with their lives or black americans or um, anybody who uh, of different sexualities also were the same people that made prohibition happen mm-hmm. so it was definitely an unwanted byproduct uh, that probably on top of the fact that prohibition was being so blatantly flouted across the country it probably made those same people pull their hair out even more right which i'm all about yeah that's awesome it's like just stick them while they're right right well they a lot of um people like wayne wheeler they 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 watched their influence just drop on the floor all these people that had gotten this passed they, they were all very good at making it happen, at getting the votes to make it happen. But as far as managing it and, you know, it was kind of like a dog. They, they were dogs that caught the mailman. They didn't know what to do with it when they got it. And so they get prohibition and they think that Americans will just go, well, it's the law now. So let's let's obey it. And then boom, done. You don't have to think about alcohol as a problem anymore. But that's not how it goes. And they weren't prepared to deal with that. Um, and so a lot of those people, uh, Wayne Wheeler, uh, is the big one. He was the guy that kind of the political lobbyist who got prohibition passed. He's, if I would 
point to one person who without their presence, prohibition would have never happened. It would be Wayne Wheeler. Um, during the twenties, not only do people get kind of sick of his rhetoric, um, some really, he says some really bad things. He, he allied, he had always allied with the Ku Klux Klan, but also, um, the government poisoned a lot of industrial alcohol with, uh, inedible, uh, toxic ingredients because you weren't supposed to drink industrial alcohol, but they knew that people were stealing it to bootleg with. They would renature it and drink it anyway. So the government said, uh, well, let's, let's put toxic ingredients. They labeled it with the idea that people would see the label and go, oh, well, then I won't use that to bootleg with. That's not what people did. Mm -hmm. They stole it anyway. They drank it and they died. Uh, some estimates say 11,000 people died from that alone. Wow. Uh, and so they ask, of course, Wayne Wheeler as a leader of the movement about it. Um, and his response was that, well, those people basically committed suicide. They knew what they were doing. And so that that kind of really harsh stuff, may, that that's kind of where you start to see Americans go, maybe this isn't the guy. And these aren't the people we want to ally with. And that public opinion... Public opinion made prohibition happen, and their inability to manage public opinion and keep it being seen as a virtue, prohibition, uh, is really what killed it. Prohibition, there was no political appetite to repeal prohibition until Americans had finally turned against it. Uh, people like Roosevelt, people like Hoover, uh, you know, all the presidents and, and notable senators of the time, even if they thought personally that prohibition needed to go away, they didn't talk about it until it was po politically popular to do so because it was a it was a it was a hot potato. So when you walk into the American Prohibition Museum, you are pretty much slapped in the face by suddenly being on a street in 1918. There's a truck. There are sounds, street sounds. There's a dog barking, car horns honking. There are wax figures all around you. Uh, and then there is a live docent in period costume, just basically bringing you into the time period, explaining to you the historical context of where you are. From there, it, it goes chronologically where you're basically right on the precipice of Prohibition beginning, and you go up into the into a hall where you're surrounded by the propaganda of the era that the movement, both wet and dry, were using to kind of influence people's hearts and minds. Uh, when Prohibition passes, you, you, you descend you can kind of feel the mood of the uh, room starting as economy starts to get hurt and uh, crime starts to overtake the country. Um, and then it's all lifted up with the flappers and the speakeasy at the end as prohibition is repealed. Um, it's really the story of, of prohibition as a movement beginning all the way up through its success and then, of course, through its failures. And uh, uh, it is a good time. Interactive exhibits all throughout. Uh, you can find more information at www.americanprohibitionmuseum.com. We are on Facebook, we are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter. And you can find our, uh, we have a YouTube and a Facebook video channel, uh, Facebook watch channel uh, for the American Prohibition Museum, uh, where you can find our uh, monthly show, Know Your Onions, which is hosted by, by me and my wonderful co-host, uh, Gabrielle Heinzelman, who is our assistant museum director. And we have a great time doing that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Savannah, Georgia, Anything But Ordinary. This podcast has been brought to you by Visit Savannah, the official destination marketing organization for Savannah, Georgia and the surrounding area, produced by Tyler Edick and hosted by Shannon Lowry. Make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite listening platform, follow us on social media at Visit Savannah, and learn more at visitsavannah.com.